Hi, this is AP, uh, always positive. Uh, today we have another episode of West Bank Robbery. Uh, I apologize because I did not record my audio for this episode, so uh, it may be a little disjointed in some places, uh, unclear exactly um, what what our guests may be responding to, uh, but, but I think that there's a lot of really good stuff here uh, that it still uh, is worth putting out. Thank you, everyone, for your patience. Uh, our guest today is James Dahl. Uh, he's an expert in uh, self uh, self-trained expert in uh, Horn of Africa, uh, the history, uh, and uh, and the uh, politics. Uh, we brought him on to explain a little bit about what's going on with uh, the war that's happening right now in Ethiopia and how the history of the, the region uh, and the nation Ethiopia uh, plays, in, plays in that conflict. Thank you again. Can you give us a quick rundown on what's happening? The war, the current war, that is. Sure. So, um, yeah, so the war, the war formally began on uh, November 4th, uh, 2020. So it's been about, it's been just over a year now. It's like the the one year anniversary was, uh, yeah, I think was it two weeks ago, and uh, that was when the uh, TPLF uh, did a preemptive strike on the Northern Command military base in uh, northern Ethiopia, and um, that started the Ethiopian civil war, and then immediately after that, the uh, Eritrean army sent in, I think, I think the TPLF said about sixteen divisions which is quite a few guys. And uh, the, the uh, Ethiopian uh, ENDF, the Ethiopian National Defense Force, invaded from the south. And the uh, Amhara state sent in their own forces. Amhara state is a region of Ethiopia. And they sent in their forces into Tigray as well. So they got attacked by three different sides at once. And, um, and then the war um, kind of ground to a halt for about a couple of weeks, and then the Ethiopian government issued an ultimatum uh, for the TPLF to surrender, uh, and then they withdrew from Mekele, and then the Ethiopian army entered Mekele, and then they turned off the internet and phones and communications in, in Tigray for, you know, eight, nine months, and nobody heard anything. And then the next thing that's in the news is the TPLF parading the 20,000 NDF soldiers without boots and, and guns down the streets of Mekele as they re-entered it and then have been marching south towards Addis Ababa ever since. I thought it was over at that point. I was like, oh, there's oh, a yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that was sort of by design. So um, everybody kind of deliberately looked away and they say, okay, you know, there's going to be some ugly business here, but, you know, state stability comes first. So we all just need to you know, ignore what's going on and let the Ethiopians sort out their business. And, you know, when it's all over, we'll, we'll say it was a terrible tragedy and we won't move on with our lives. But that's not what happened. The Tigrayans, you know, went to the mountains, uh, adopted a very successful uh, Maoist guerrilla strategy, uh, which worked way faster than it normally does. And uh, they are a Maoist organization originally, correct? Yes, and they still are. Actually, that's one of the that's one of the reasons why um, 
this is kind of the backdrop to this is the TPLF is still a Maoist organization, but it's sort of like, Ma I guess now Maoist flavored, I guess you could say, like they're not, they're, they're more of a, it's like, you know how like Maoism is kind of a spectrum between nationalism and, and Marxist-Leninism always in all these organizations. And it's like, where are you on that spectrum, right? Like TPLF is like more on the nationalist side. Like it's, it's mostly it's a gray nationalist organization with like some Maoism. And I mean, you look at China, it kind of waffles, you know, there's every, every leader change, they move somewhere on that spectrum, you know, so, uh, but um, currently I'd say they're almost entirely a nationalist organization, but they still have that tradition. The tradition's still there and they still have that, that belief in like the, the importance of going to the people and, so that's and that where their power work, base comes from. You know? Is it through community engagement? Like, what are they? Are they operating sort of like, I don't know, Hezbollah or like? Well, it, they were they were aided a lot. So when the Ethiopian army entered Tigray, um, the TPLF people are kind of sick of TPLF. Like, I think if 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 the army had just entered and hadn't done anything else, nothing would have happened. Um, people would have just okay. Well, you know what? They screwed up. We'll just get a note. We'll we'll make a PP party, a prosperity party, Tigray branch, and we'll just move on with our lives. But that's not what happened. What happened was, is that when so the Amhara uh, believed that in 1991 the TPLF stole a bunch of uh, ancient Amhara lands from from their you know ancestral homeland, and that this has been a huge sore point. So the, the Amhara nationalists are, are very powerful. Uh, they're the dominant force in, in Amhara politics nowadays. And so when they invaded, they actually annexed um, Western, what's, what's referred to, they call it Northern Gondor, but what Tigrayans call Western Tigray, into Amhara state. Uh, the whole Western area, plus they annexed uh, what, what's the Raya region, which is the very southern part of Tigray, into so it was they actually annexed it into, and then they also started ethnically cleansing it of of Tigrayans, and this was mostly in Western Tigray. In Southern Tigray, it was controlled by the army, and so the army didn't want to start any shit with the the Tigray. They, so the ethnic cleansing didn't really happen in in Raya, which was occupied by the national army, but in the Western Tigray, which was the area that was attacked by the Amhara forces. Uh, just, I mean, there were Sudanese fishermen fishing bodies out of the river that had been tied up and shot for months, just hundreds and hundreds of bodies a week. A week. And um, and also the Air the Eritreans uh, were really uh, bent on revenge. Like they they had really gotten screwed over by the TPLF in the nine in the nineteen ninety eight to two thousand war. How so? Because it seems like Eritrea got its own country and Ethiopia's landlocked. How did well, no, this is this is after that. So seven years after independence, so they got independence in 1990. So um, after the after the Derg was defeated, uh, Eritrea got their declared independence, and because they were sort of the dominant force, nobody could really contest it, and also the TPLF wasn't interested in contesting it, so they just wished them on their merry way. But then there's this stupid border town uh, called Badme. And the border commission couldn't agree on who owned Badme. And Badme isn't a Tigray town. So this was a grotesquely bloody war. Like hundreds of thousands of people died. The air train economy was completely destroyed. Uh, and also um, 
because Ethiopia was more at the time, like kind of drifting into the orbit of the U.S. as a client state, it ended up becoming kind of a joint client state of China and the U.S. But at the time, it was it was more of like a becoming a U.S. proxy. So the U.S. really made Eritrea into a into a pariah state, and that was really when Eritrea um, under Isaias Afwerki uh, to maintain the state. Uh, became like just a totally totalitarian dictatorship to like basically the rule of one man. It has been ever since. Like um, there's no politics in Eritrea. He's just, you say yourself work, he, the dictator. And prior to that, they were a socialist government, correct? Well, kind of. I mean, they're still sort of sorting that out. Like um, well, before the Bad May War, uh, they like renamed the party. They had this ruling party. Uh, they actually broke the church away. Like there's an autonomous Eritrean church. That, that separated, but then like um, there hasn't been an Abuna of the Eritrean Church for like ten years. Like he threw him in prison, so just never replaced him. Project or uh, just more. Well, I think it's just like I think he was he was against the reforms that that Esaias mm-hmm. was pushing, and so he just got rid of them and never replaced them. And um, yeah, he's like it's a total police state. And they have this, well, they have this crazy policy where there's indefinite conscription. So the government can conscript you forever in Eritrea. And they also, um, the, the conscripts aren't just in the army. They're put in like public works and like industries and projects and stuff owned by the government. So they have like this crazy, like military slavery system. It's a totally messed up state. Like Eritrea is. Egypt used to have something similar. Lots of. Uh, Abi. Uh, Abi Ahmed. Yeah, Abi Ahmed. Yeah. Not really. I mean, it's kind of the opposite is true. Like, um, Abi Ahmed, when he came in, one of the big things he promised to do was uh, open up the economy. Um, and he was the more favored guy from the U.S.'s perspective. Uh, the U.S. is sort of turning against him now because he screwed up. And now he's, his administration is threatening the stability of the country. Um I think if the U.S. does intervene, actually, what they will do is intervene against the TPLF to stop them from taking out a Sababa. Like, if they do send troops, they'll, they'll do it to do that, because um, that's really all they really care about is that Ethiopia doesn't explode. Uh, they don't really care who wins. Like, they don't really have any interests in the country anymore. Like, the big dam that uh, is built in the West um, is a Chinese-funded dam. And it's one of the biggest Chinese infrastructure projects in Africa. It's the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And this is the major dispute between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt over the Nile water rights, which is this totally unequal treaty that was signed um, a couple times, ratified a couple different times. But uh, basically, the outline of the treaty is that Egypt gets 80% of the Nile water, and Sudan gets 10% of the Nile water. And then all the other downstream countries get the remaining 10% of the Nile water. So that's like Uganda, Ethiopia, um, Tanzania, you know, yeah. everybody. Has that led to issues? Or like, if, is there significant lack of water in a lot of these places due to that? Well, that's what people thought this war would be originally about. Like, when people thought there was going to be a war in Ethiopia, they thought it would be a war between uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. And that's why there's a lot of conspiracy theories that Egypt is like funding the TPLF or something. Um, but there was a mini war. There was a conflict because um, 
Melisinawi, who's sort of this evil genius who used to run uh, Ethiopia poster, until 2012, correct? he negotiated the this. Government, the D, What's um, that? Whatever you, what do you call it? The post derg socialist Yeah, yeah. So he was in charge uh, from the fall of the derg until 2012 when he died of, uh, I think, cancer. I have to look it up. But, um, and then the, his death is really what precipitated this whole crisis. And then when he died, um, there wasn't, it's actually, he was the last Tigray, uh, prime minister in 2012. After him, he was replaced with this compromise candidate because they knew that like, you couldn't, you couldn't pick an Amhara or a Tigray or an Oromo. And because the other guys was like, well, wait, no, I should be in charge. So they decided to try to bypass this whole issue by picking somebody who's like from a tiny ethnic group in the far South called the Waleta. And, uh, so the guy who was in charge from 2012 until 2018, was this kind of uh, backbencher, uh, Waleta guy from the far south? Like, is an ethnic group that has no, like, nobody cares about the Waleta. Like, you can't, you can't be angry at a Waleta prime minister. I mean, who cares? It would be like, um, I don't know, like uh, Yugoslavia, you know, and you pick, okay, who's going to be the prime minister of Yugoslavia? Uh, okay, how about a Montenegro? Right? I mean, who cares, right? You know, that's not, you're not involved in any of the major disputes. Well, it was an empire. It was a straight-up empire. Um, actually, one of the big problems with Ethiopia is that uh, it was an empire formed by conquest and military colonization. So um, the original, the core of the, the old kingdom, like the kingdom of Ethiopia, like I guess Abyssinia, which is uh, a kind of anglicization from Habesha, which is the name of the kingdom and the ethnic group that make up the Amhara, the Tigray, and some other Muslim groups like the Hararis and Garajes, uh, they all speak a, a Semitic language. And uh, that's like the, the Northern Highlands, basically between, um, like if you see like the Lake Tana and the Blue Nile, that kind of goes up. And so um, encircling that and then up to the, the sea is the old kingdom. And, um, that's sort of like, that's the core. And basically in the 19th century, uh, the various kings, first of Tigray and then Shiwa, uh, acquired modern, modern firearms and conquered what's now Ethiopia. And most of who they conquered weren't originally part of Ethiopia. The southern were people Christians were independent. Down there? Um, yeah, because the, I know... The people they conquered? Was a, yeah. uh, originally, some of them were. Um, but well, kind of like Christianized, I guess. Um, like the Waleta, for instance, were early converts to Christianity. Um, like they're they're Southern people. They're not Semitic or Cushitic. Like they're not closely related to either the Oromo or the uh, Amhara or any other group. Uh, there are languages uh, like Omo languages, which is a whole other group. So. Uh, but they've, they've sort of been in the orbit of Ethiopia, like like they, those areas have been like vassals or like paid tribute to emperors of Ethiopia in the past, but they're never like part of the state. And um, like uh, Menelik the first, who is this uh, Shiwan king who conquered all the other uh, states, was kind of getting into the weeds because at the time, like yeah, like the Ethiopia kind of dissolved, so. Ethiopia has kind of gone through these different periods of, of state collapse and then consolidation. 
like uh, the the Ethiopia that was around, like the Ethiopian Empire of the 1930s was sort of the third empire, right? You know, it was the first empire is like the Aksumite Empire, and that fell apart in the 700s. You know, uh, ended up uh, there's a huge civil war between uh, different claimants to the throne, um, and just broke apart into different groups. And there was like the it broke into the Kingdom of Beta Israel, which was Jewish, um, the Kingdom of Shewa in the south, which was Muslim. Uh, uh, can't, like the Tigray, the Bar Negus, the King of the Sea, uh, and then the uh, the Habesh, the core, like the sort of Rump Kingdom, which was uh, ended up under a, a, a Zagwe dynasty, which is not uh, Amhara or, or uh, Tigray. It's actually uh, Agu, which are uh, native people of the islands. This could, yeah, the Cushitic people who were there before the people from Yemen arrived, like the or, the origins of the... So they uh, actually inherited the kingdom through marriage. So the there's these two branches of the family. And the original branch died out. And so the, the Zagwe inherited the throne. Um, and then the there was a cadet branch of the of the Amhara dynasty in the far south, in Ashiwa. Uh, it was the lord of Tegulet Castle. And uh, that guy was uh, Yakunu Amwak. And he overthrew the Zagwe in a military coup in 1270. And then it was still kind of a rump kingdom. It was this tiny little kingdom. And then in the 1300s, there was this guy named Amdaseon who conquered everybody. Like, uh, he conquered the whole throne. He basically conquered what would describe as now Ethiopia. Like, he conquered far into Somalia, far into the south, um, like subdued like, the all the way to the Sudanese border territory? and uh, yeah, I think it's never been bigger than that. Like under his administration, and uh, that was like the 1300s, and then his dynasty um, kind of ruled for a while. But then they had this huge conflict with uh, people in the in the east, the the Somalis, and various sort of allied Muslim groups. Uh, didn't want to be vassals. They wanted to be independent. Uh, and they, were, you know, kept rebelling, rebelling. Uh, eventually, there was this huge war where um, his descendant um, marched into the capital of, of Adal, which was the strongest Muslim Somali sultanate, and destroyed it. And the, the Adal uh, dynasty fled to Yemen in exile. But they came back 10 years later and fought this, this brutal war uh, and ended up reclaiming their old lands, and then this this big war, and then the Ottomans yeah, got involved, the Portuguese got involved, and that was the Lots yeah, and that was the Adal War, and uh, yeah, and uh, and it's actually yeah, this the so there was this um, the the sultans of Adal were overthrown by this uh, military leader, this guy uh, Imam uh, Ahmed uh, in, uh, in Ahmed Gran or Ahmed Gure, as the Somalis call him. And uh, he wasn't a member of the royal family of Adal, but he put, like, a puppet king on the throne of Adal. And he got, like, Muslim, uh, Ottoman support and guns and cannons, and he marched and conquered most of Ethiopia. At one point, um, I think the kingdom of Ethiopia had only uh, uh, Gojam and a couple parts of what's now Eritrea. And then the Portuguese intervened, and a Portuguese sniper shot uh, Imam Amagure. And when he died, his army kind of dissolved. 
Um, but the Ethiopians, they, re they reclaimed some of the territory, but both of the groups were so exhausted that the southern group came in, uh, so called the Oromo, who at the time were a small tribe who lived in the south. And uh, the Oromo have a very kind of martial uh, cultural system. It's called the Gada system. Uh, which is sort of quasi-democratic. It's it's hard to explain. Basically, there's like, you get born into an age set. And um, every eight years, you graduate to a different age age grade. And when you're 40 to 48, everybody in that age grade is in charge of the society. And so it's a very regimented, kind of like military-style organization of the society. Uh, so they invaded... Uh, and conquered a ton time, of territory. I think basically yeah. the current border like feudal structure that's, that's yeah. pretty progressive. Yeah, and they were so exhausted they just kind of walked in there. It was kind of like it's kind of similar actually to what happened with the Persians yeah, and the Byzantines yeah. with the Arabs. You know, they they beat the shit out of each other, and then you know this this yeah, third group just kind of wanders in and takes over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's also that's why most like there's the Aromo ethnic group. Is very big, but most Oromo are sort of, um, it's a very diverse group because tons of the people have been kind of Arom you know, joined the Oromo ethnic group because of conquest. Uh, so, um, but they're the Does largest group in Ethiopia today. Weigh heavily on, like the Ethiopian consciousness? Like, is. Oh, yeah. I mean, people, you know, okay. argue about this stuff even today. And, um, and those fragmentations, like uh, the, the first fragmentation where um, the Ethiopian, the Aksumite Empire fell apart, there was a very long interregnum, like uh, between, I mean, you did, you had uh, one coherent empire in 700, and there wasn't another coherent empire until 1300, right? So in between that period, like the Amhara were, were divided from the Tigray, who were the same ethnic group up until that point. And became two completely different ethnic groups that were kind of opposed to each other. Like when Amdaseon, uh, the first group he invaded was the Tigray, like the lords of Tigray, who would didn't accept him as, as king and declared themselves as the kings of Tigray. So he, he like he that was the first group that he conquered, you know, before he went after all the other groups. Both in Romulan situation. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um the, so the second empire, like the Amdaseon's empire, really established Amhara dominance. That was like, uh, it, it was an Amhara kingdom with the sort of like, like Amhara language, court language and customs and really established themselves. Okay, we're the ruling ethnic group of the kingdom. But when that empire like, fell apart, so there was like the pressure from the Oromo invasions, but also um, there was state fragmentation. So uh, different regional governors uh, asserted their independence. And in the, it's called the era of princes. So in the 1700s until the 1800s, um, different regional warlords uh, basically would put one or, one or the other puppet king on the throne, and they would be basically in charge. It was kind of like feudal Japan, like you have kind of a shogun situation where you have this, this emperor with no power. And these regional Ras figures who would, would have all the actual power. And they would fight one another. Basically, like they would invade and defeat one Ras, and then the guy would put his claim on the throne. 
and then another guy would invade six, six months later and overthrow that Ross and put that their guys imperial the planning on the throne. There were a lot of European involvement in Ethiopian politics, or Arab, or like you know, like not yet slave trade or anything like that. Was you know, yeah. Oh, you know, Ethiopia has always been very big on the slave trade. In fact, um, the word for um, people from the west of the country, so people who are like kind of a Sudanese uh, descent, like there's a whole group called the Gumus and the uh, Beni Shangul and, and different people. So they're all called Shankala, which just means slave. Is that in common? Yeah. Would you say that in so, um, And Ethiopia. Uh, I guess it depends. Uh, well, it's, yeah. it's like, uh, it depends. I mean, I think like a Gumus would be offended, but everybody else wouldn't care. It's one of those kinds of yeah, situations. Yeah. Still kind of a racist country. <laughs> but um, yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's not a it's not a polite term. Um, oh, Arabs! The Arabs imported tons of slaves from Ethiopia. It was their it was the main source of slaves uh, into the um, like a lot of the slave armies that ended up in India, like the Mamluk dynasties, and a lot of these guys who. You know, slave soldiers who became kings in India, they were all Ethiopians who were basically brought in there as slaves. And um, for a long time, it was a big source of the economy in Ethiopia was slavery. It's sort of undercover, not really known that way, you know. But uh, um, so, yeah, so in the era of princes, it was ended basically where um, the princes finally got kind of, uh, I guess, there would be consolidation where the, these regional kings would arise who would then seize the throne, like uh, Menelik and uh, Tudros, or these uh, Tudros of, uh, of Tigray and then Menelik of Shiwa. And Menelik was the, the penultimate one of these guys, um, these unifiers, who uh, is, is that's why it's that's why the capital is in Addis Ababa, is because um, Menelik was the Shiwa king. And he um, trusted people from Shiwa. So when he conquered everybody else, he would put Shiwa administrators in charge of everybody. I'm assuming that only worked out for so long. Well, I mean, it worked out as long as he was alive, you know. It's pretty good. And pretty good. So um, in the era of princes, the empire was kind of a theoretical concept. Like, um, in reality, there was these sort of regional warlords who, uh, you know, were de facto their own country, right? Um, and they would, they would install emperors, uh, to achieve sort of the, that was, but that was achieving hegemony. You're like, okay, I've got the emperor. So that means you guys have to listen to the, to my emperor. Right. And then I'm the preeminent prince. Right. But that wouldn't stop some other guy from invading and installing his imperial claim. And then in, in, yeah, very, very much so. Like, you know, there's this theoretical concept of the Ethiopian empire. But in reality, it's this mess of, of, you know, feudal warlords. How far back would you say, like, Ethiopia as it is, or, you know, whatever you want to call it? Like, the, the central force, like, the thing that would keep these places together. Is it is it more of a cycle of them constantly spinning off and recentralizing? Or is it, uh, like, a, like, when does a national idea well, the, take hold? I'd say the... Or like, a unified... Right? Yeah, there's, there's, like, organic sort of pieces right it's kind of like um like it's an empire in that the organically it's not one thing organically it's like tigray amhara somalia um a couple different ogaden 
um, like different Ogun in here, Marahan there, like different Somali tri- Somali clans, uh, different um, Aromo like Tulama, Maka, um, Karayu, Borana. You know, very fragmented. If you if you dissolved it down to sort of organic components, like what what's stable just by itself, it would be about 20, 30 different states. Um, it's sort it's more like Austria Hungary. It's like this collection of conquered people, you know, who are acquired by marriage or conquest or whatever. Um, one of the modernizing, uh, centralizing forces was uh, a military colonists. That were sent out from the highlands to colonize these conquered provinces and establish. Is that, is that like like a Greek sense? Like how how's that work? Okay, so so it's it's a very Ethiopian institution. It's it's a pejorative now, neftenga, rifle rifle bearer. Um, like if you if you talk to a a, a Romo guy, he'll, if he's referring to Amhara, we call them neftenga, which is. It's the pejorative term, basically referring to military colonists, land grabber, basically. And um, basically the way it would work is that military veterans would be permanently uh, settled in these conquered provinces full of hostile natives. And they would have like a fortress and they were there to basically permanently establish a presence in that area. So if it revolted, there'd be this little island of Amhara to, you know, provide a, a an anchor for the state. And that's the reason why nowadays there's Ampara in every part of Ethiopia. And that's the, one of the biggest problems right now is that when the TPLF um, took over the country, um, they split it into these regional um, ethnic states. But um, there's Ampara in every one of those states because from the history of, of the empire, and and they've been there for hundreds of years. So they, um, the Amhara as an ethnic group don't want regional autonomy. They want a unitary state. They see that a unitary state in Ethiopia equals like what the what, and everybody sees it this way. That's the Amhara, pro Amhara policy. I, I feel like the, the material the, conditions there would they have they they would need that right just because they're so dispersed you know little pockets are useful if you're in charge yeah, but yeah. if you're not that's you know that's a quick ethnic cleansing um, exactly but this is like also i mean it's like the the politics of any country is is the dynamism is based on ancient grudges and stuff right so so one of the reasons why the dirt stirred up this hornet's nest of, of nationalism is um, two things. One was their literacy program and the modernization program where they would send out doctors and teachers and nurses and everybody into the countryside to, you know, modernize, industrialize, you know, basically bring Ethiopia from this feudal peasant society into the, into the 20th century. But all those teachers and doctors and nurses all spoke Amharic, worked in Amharic, and only only operated. So all the te- like, all the classes were in Amharic. Yeah, but it was like what well, you know there there are explanations as well. Look, I mean, all the educated people are Amharic. We don't have any, you know, people who speak Barana, you know, who can be, you know, we don't have any Barana doctors. We don't have any, and that's part that was part of the racism is that uh, the empire before the Derg um, only did educate, you know, Amhara. They weren't interested in educating hostile 
minorities, right? I wouldn't say that that was their policy. I think it's, I don't think they set out to create this like Amharaization program across the country. I think it's just the result of their policies was that. Like it wasn't that they, but I think they're, the people who opposed them saw it that way. That this was this was Amharization. They're going to try to wipe out our culture. They're going to try to wipe out our, our people. And um, the Tigray, in particular, um, this also became a, a an angle on the Sino-Soviet split. And that the Tigrayan rebels. So they also um, so the the Derg were very orthodox Marxist-Leninist of the seventies, right? Like in kind of Brezhnev orthodoxy. It's like okay, we just need to. Go in there and we need to industrialize, we need a proletarian state, and we need to, you know, have a centralized modern Ethiopia. And the TPLF, the Tigray, the strongest Tigray group, um, took a very different tack. They're basically Maoist, that we need to go to the people, go to the countryside, um, and build a sort of peasant worker, you know. But also the, again, it has the nationalist angles. They also they also see the dirt as attacking their nationality. And so it's this kind of dual ideological like and also really national struggle. Like Marxist Leninist national program. It doesn't seem like the national question is like really tried to be solved. Yeah. yeah. Well, the national question is yeah. the thorniest, thorniest issue. It seems like right? they tried then, to make it a Roman. It's like if there's, you know, SSR or something. Well, it's like, I mean, imagine if, if like after World War One, let's say after World War One, there was a, there was a communist oh, revolution yeah. in Austria-Hungary. Right, and the Czech Liberation Army marched down and took Vienna, and established and and then decided to create like this, just keep Austria Hungary for some insane reason. Like that's basically what happened. You know, they break it up into its component pieces, and everybody has their own little, you know, the Galician People's Front and the freaking you know Slovak People's Front. But no, we keep this insane empire together in one unit. Like at very least, you want to have one army. You know. Not usually a good idea to have like six armies. Though I guess when you come into power, yeah, coups, um, it's good to have a secondary source to back you up. <laughs> well, the the T yeah TPLF were only six like there's only six million Tigray out of a hundred million people, so you need to co-opt people. You can't literally just rule. You know, it's, it's it's even worse than like in Syria with like the Alawites, right? You know, it's like they're what like at least 20 percent. I mean, these are like six yeah. percent of the population. Very interesting. Seems like a major failure, and I don't understand. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, what's the goal? Nobody knows what they want. This is the thing. They're very cagey. Like they. Uh, they, the U.S. The, they want the opposite. They want a unitary Ethiopia, because the last thing anybody wants is the breakup of Ethiopia. It would be the biggest humanitarian catastrophe in history. There'd be, you know, 50, 60 million refugees. Um, it would spread. It would, you know, flood into every other neighboring country. Because um, there's there's neighboring ethnic groups. I mean, it, you know, get such so would like roll over into South Sudanese conflict, maybe Kenya has instability, maybe like the Oromo, maybe there's an Oromo-Somali conflict that like rolls over into Kenya. Um, what do you do with the refugees? Yeah. Uh, it, was just, it would just be a nightmare, right? Nobody wants that. I've never seen you know? risk of like humanitarian crisis since like, you know, our goal of the, the uh... Well, Ethiopia is also a key, key American ally. 
So it is the American ally. Theory or something here is um, like I, I feel like a lot of East African countries are not that strong or stable. Like they're not able to necessarily interfere with Canadian mining companies or something like that. Like they're at the behest of those companies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, every every mining company is a Canadian mining company. We're the Pan- yeah, we are great. the Panama of mining companies. We're the flag you're of convenience. Everywhere. Yeah. And like. All for those tax credits. That's that's uh, why I think. Yeah, wait, wait, yeah I, I just think that might be a reason why stability in Africa might be a better U.S. war goal rather than like the Middle East or like Syria or something like that, where there's states that uh, can challenge I mean, like the U.S. partners in the region. Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a scenario real quick. Like, I'll just give you a real scenario real quick here. So, if Ethiopia implodes, for instance, and there's um, let's say something fragments into Somalia, you know, uh, Oromia, uh, Tigray, uh, Ampara, and there's the huge fight for Addis Ababa, a bunch of genocide, um, Oromo are killing Amhara, Amhara are killing Oromo all throughout the south. Um, there's like a huge crisis in this, you know destabilizes Kenya, destabilizes Sudan, destabilize. I mean, first of all, it's massively bad for business. Second of all, Ethiopia currently, along with Uganda, is holding down uh, probably the biggest and most powerful uh, Islamist anti-American rebel group in in Africa, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which, you know, almost conquered Somalia and reunified it as a state in 2006. And Ethiopia invaded and crushed it in a huge battle, Christmas Day, two thousand six. And they're they're waiting, they're they're Taliban style, waiting for people to go away. And that would be the biggest opportunity for them in a hundred years. They could just wander into you know Somali region, take maybe twenty thousand soldiers, and just take the whole place over. I mean, they you know. And then, I don't know, invade Astababa. Do it. Who knows, right? I mean, there's, there's huge numbers of Muslim Oromo. Maybe they, you know, start a branch there, you know, start, you know, I mean, there's nightmare scenarios for American imperialism in this whole region. Yeah, like it's bad for business. You want to keep it together. You want to keep it stable. You don't want any millions of refugees. You want to keep the oil exploration contracts in the Elgin rolling. You want to keep the rare earth mined out of the south. You you don't want the thing falling apart. Yeah, like I'd say it's like a, I'd say totalitarian state capitalist. I'm not sure how socialist I'd call it. I mean, it's, but it's basically almost more fascist economics, you know, under the PRDF. Which gets to another point. I wanted to make, and it seems that Ethiopia has been getting weapons and military aid from Israel for its entire existence, even during the Derg, which shocked me. I'm like, what are you doing? How, like, yep. that's grade one. That's Don't grade one. Pilots. You, know, you can't be doing that. Yep. Like, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the whole, uh, I mean, the Ethiopians, Ethiopia sees themselves, this is the national legend. So if you, you know of the, the Keber Negist, you heard of this thing? It's a book of kings. So the 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 national myth of Ethiopia, uh, they believe that the first king of Ethiopia, uh, um, uh, Ibn Hakim, otherwise known as Menelik, was literally the son of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. So they believe they are literally Israelis. 
or Israelites, I suppose. I mean, this is total bullshit. Like, it's not chronologically possible. I don't understand. I guess they, maybe it had something to do with getting the beta. Really, though, there's some sort of deal there. I, I just don't get it. I guess they just wanted them, like you know. Yeah, but they still. That's the funny thing is this: the Israel still kept sending these vulture pilots. <laughs> yeah, it's no the 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 falashas as they're known. Uh, falasha it means uh, like vagabond. Uh, they're kind of a hated ethnicity. They, they weren't sad to see them go. Uh, they used to be, so they're the descendants of the Beta Israel, which was one of the big uh, component pieces. Like when, when the empire of Axum fell apart, there was a Jewish piece. And it's in the south. What's now Gondor, what's now basically the core of Amhara state, was uh, a Jewish majority kingdom called uh, Beta Israel. Um, and it was conquered finally by uh, Amdaseyam like everybody else, in the 1300s. Uh, but for like 700 years, it was this independent Jewish state. Um, but uh, just brutal massacres over the centuries. Like uh, every time they would rebel, they just, you know, stories of you know, people being beheaded and thrown off the mountaintops and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. But, I mean, I'd say, like, the thing is, is that one are all killed, I think, Tons of Amhara are basically the descendants of Beta Israel today. Um, I mean, in Ethiopia, I mean, people, there weren't huge genocides. Most people just sort of changed identities over the centuries. So, yeah, I just can't get over it. Israel's so racist. Like, they could barely let the Ethiopians in, you know? Like, if they could ever get past that, they would, they would rule the Middle East with, like, a Mamluk kingdom of, like, Ethiopian IDF soldiers. Like, they could... Uh, they could really do that, but uh, hopefully Israel never, never gets to uh, PC. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think it. I think um, it was this weird holdover. I think what had happened was that with the with the pilots, um, like Haley Selassie was this very kind of reactionary hinge pin in East Africa. Like he was part of the kind of alliance, you know, the the reactionary alliance, you know, Israel, the U.S., and South Africa, and all those. All those fun guys in Africa, uh, keeping everybody down. And um, they had this huge pilot training program. The Israelis were training all the Ethiopian pilots. And then when the government changed, when the dirt was overthrown, for some weird reason, like the, the Israeli pilots just decided to stick around. For some, it was unclear why. Like they were just kind of hanging out. Like this guy still liked them or something, you know? Yeah. I guess there was ethnic conflict. They liked that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They purged everybody except the Air Force. You this can't is, purge the Air Force. This is the insane thing is they purged everybody except the Air Force, which was literally like trained by Israel. And it's a Soviet proxy. Yeah, that's shocking to me. But like that's not the most bizarre part. I mean, so uh, when the Derg overthrew Haile Selassie, uh, and allegedly the, the leader of the of the Derg, uh, Mengistu, <laughs> allegedly, this is not proved, allegedly strangled Haile Selassie with his own bare hand. I think most of us would like to strangle an emperor. I don't, you know, that's, that's kind of dope. So the, the Ethiopian, the Shiwa emperors who conquered this huge part, what's now Somali region and also Har, Eastern Haraj, was this Somali majority. Well, you know, Haraj sort of mixed. So it's weird. Like the area there, there's, they're like aromized Somalis or Somalized Romos, depending on who you ask. But um, anyway, uh, the leader of, um, Somalia, Siad Bare, 
had a pretty strong army. He's, he's like, okay, well, Ethiopia is in absolute chaos. They've purged the military corps. There's fighting in the streets. Uh, we're going to invade. We're going to take Western Somalia. So they created this Potemkin rebel group called the West Somalia Liberation Front that slowly infiltrated all of Western Somalia. And then when the time was right, they all sort of like spontaneously rebelled and then they invaded across the border and they made it all the way to Harar, which is up in the north. Like it's like the, it's like the Jerusalem of Somalis. It's like the, all their saints are buried there and it's this kind of holy city. But weirdly enough, not majority Somali city. And it's actually a Semitic-speaking city. They speak uh, Harari there, but it's very that's very important. Arabic last name sort of Harari. Like, like I know some Palestinians with yeah, Harari yeah. and Habash like names. That's interesting. How that yeah, goes. yeah, yeah. And um, and like there's um, uh, like Hargesa in Somaliland is a little little Harar. Mm. Yeah, so Harar is very important. So anyway, um, the Ethiopians weren't actually able to defeat the the Somali invasion who defeated them were the Cubans. The Cubans deployed like tons of their whole army basically was deployed into Africa. And they were the ones who defeated the Somali what year army this be? in, in Har. Uh, this is 1977, 1978. Oh. Yeah. And so the Cuban army and the South Yemen army, yeah, but mostly the Cubans. The South Yemenis, they seemed like they did a much better job than the Dirk you know, trying to, trying to do some Marxist Leninism. Well, the South Yemenis were kind of, it was mostly the Cubans. So there was like one, yeah, it's just nuts, right? Like, you know, it's, it's like the Portuguese, the Ottomans in, in there, you know, three centuries later. Like, what are you guys it's even very doing? very upsetting here? to but, know, you know I wish this, and like, yeah, yeah. going back to like the Somalis creating the uh, the Somali liberation, they, that's what makes like African Cold War so difficult for me is that everybody's named like a communist group and I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it varies from time to time. Like, it depends on what's popular, right? So, like, when Marxism was big, everybody is like the, liber the, the whatever liberation mm. front. Now, it's like the democratic forces of, yeah, yeah. of whatever, right? And uh, during George W. Bush, they were all like the, the anti-terror forces or the, the forces, the alliance for countering nice. terrorism. Good call. Like, uh, in, in 2004, there was an attempt to build a national... Uh, government in mm. Somalia. Like, it had been kind of fragmented with these warlords, you know, for, for ages and ages. And there was a peace agreement in 2000 which ended the war in Arta in, in mm. Djibouti. And there was a provision for a national government. So they formed this national government in, in Mogadishu that uh, made a deal with uh, the Islamists, who would later become the Union of Islamic Courts, to establish sort of a central authority and get rid of all these freaking warlords and all these checkpoints that are every mm. two kilometers. And they largely succeeded in, in the city. And then they wanted to basically expand, build a national army and take out all these like weird fiefdoms that, that had grown up in the mm -hmm. ensuing you know, time since the state had collapsed. Um, but the various like Puntland and the, and the warlords of Somalia gathered together and dubbed themselves the Alliance for the, uh, I think what was it? Alliance for Restoration of Democracy and Counterterrorism. And which it was this group of warlords who were the Alliance for Restoration of Democracy and Counterterrorism. And they got funding from the Bush administration and actually managed to get the next election in 2004 where the national government was dissolved. And then the leader of Puntland became the president. And then it was renamed the national government to the federal government. Okay. 
And that was when the UIC, the Union of Islamic Courts, then were basically like the, the Islamists who they, the national government to deal with and the nationalists who wanted a unitary mm-hmm. authority attacked the warlords, drove them out of Mogadishu, conquered half the country, and then the Ethiopians invaded in 2006 and smushed them. So Ethiopian state policy for the last, I'd say, 30 years, Ethiopian and American policy has been no strong Somali mm-hmm. state. Unitary Ethiopia, strong unitary Ethiopia, and no Somalia. Somalia is fragmented, weak, and dead. Forever. Wow. I just, that, yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah. this is, this is, this is giving me, like, the same headache as, like, Libya right now. You know? Like, like just yeah, everybody's yeah. on, like, France is on one side, but UK's on another. Like, it's, uh, it seems like a battle of... I love the coalition of the Eastern Med War. This is like fucking World War One brewing. Haftar used like, to live in what? Northern Virginia. He used to hang out at this Iraqi restaurant and shit talk all the Palestinians. Oh yeah, they're like, we got to go to work, and he's like, I'm just gonna sit here shit talking, and everybody's like, he's got CIA money. Don't argue with him. He can do it forever. Yeah. You know? That was the that was uh, the second big deployment too of the RSF, the the Sudanese, uh, the the renamed mm-hmm. Janjaweed under uh, the the Donkey King. They were deployed and they were a part of the big part. They were the muscle of uh, Hafter's force. That guy will do anything. Yeah. I'll give him that. He's a little worm. He can do. He... But isn't that wild that you had like Russian mercenaries, like Sudanese, Janjaweed. Functionally and, like, a Northern Virginia. Weird, like, CIA back like, Libya. He's a government contractor. <laughs> he's essentially a Northern Virginia government contractor. He's like anybody else you see around here at this point. Yeah. Now he's got his own army. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The North, Northern Command Base of the Ethiopian mm-hmm. National Defense Force. But there's some mitigating factors to this. One is that Abiy Ahmed had actually moved his army to the border of Tigray a month before the war started. And also, um, the the Ethiopian National Defense Force, the general staff leaked like a sieve. Like half of them were mm-hmm. Tigray. Half of them were Tigrayan. And they were all basically phoning home and saying, so yeah, we're going to attack like next week. So they knew it was coming. So basically, the day before they were scheduled to attack on the 5th, they, they attacked a day before and, and surprise attacked them. And actually, the Tigrayans in the base had already decided to defect. So like inside the base, they were already like basically a TDF mm. division that helped capture the base. And that's why like the whole base was... Ca- and I think only a couple of them managed to... So the, 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 the guys who were still loyal to the B fled north to Eritrea, and that's how they so got So there's it. been a lot of fragmentation of the military? Oh, yeah, well, the, yeah. Like, at this point, well, so there's, there's sort of two Amhara forces. So there's the Amhara Special Forces, which doesn't mean elite. Special Forces means the Special State Forces. That's basically, um, in, in uh, Ethiopian parlance, the Liu Police. It's basically a... Um, they're they're like a, a gendarmerie. They're like the uh, the state's um, military militarized police, and they're they're basically there to like put down rebellions. And but they're not like a proper army. They're sort of like a, they're not necessarily in regular force because they're regular, but they're not like a main combat. Force. So to give some more color um, to the situation, uh, I don't know how much you care for hardware. I know a lot of the Radio Warner alumni don't necessarily, but like, what are we working with here? Like, Ethiopia's got a lot of important historic 
facts with like the Air Force and all that kind of stuff. Is the Air Force playing heavily here? I assume the TPLF does not have access to many aircraft, and I assume some of the smaller. Yeah, well, so now. the ENDF, the yeah, the Air Force isn't very big. Like the Ethiopian Air Force is not huge, but it's the only intact force or largely intact force that the IB still has. Like uh, the the ground forces are whittled down to nothing at this point. Like there is no ENDF anymore. Um, uh, since the war started, so so basically uh, in Ethiopia, the way it works is that there's it's a rainy season, and when it's the rainy season, um, there's so much rainfall that like normally traversable areas just become like flood rivers, mm -hmm. right? And so you can't really fight war. So it's sort of the traditional. There's like a war season in Ethiopia. There's like a rainy season. You have to wait till the rainy season's over, and then you can start mm -hmm. fighting again. So what had happened is that. Um, the TDF will hold up in the Tembian Mountains, which is a very formidable mm -hmm. terrain. Um, and the the ENDF, the Ethiopian National Defense Forces, um, were fighting various guerrilla forces all over, all over Tigray with the Eritreans. But they mostly basically had laid a siege for um, the TDF in the Tembian mm -hmm. Mountains. And But they they hadn't managed to, to you know get them out of there. Um, and so the rainy season was approaching. And so they were worried that if the rainy season came, they would have to withdraw and the siege would fail, basically, that they, they'd get away or they'd go somewhere else. And so uh, a bee basically ordered them to attack this incredibly fortified position in the mountains, like right before the rainy season starts. And it was just a total disaster. The whole army basically got trapped and surrendered. And so the, the TDF captured basically one field army of the NDF. Oh, wow. In the 10 so what's hours. that, like 20, and, 40, 50,000? About? Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Easily. Yeah, just the whole army, basically. And um, at that point, they basically they had tons of volunteers because uh, the Eritreans and the uh, Amhara and even the ENDF, to a certain extent, were like raping and killing yeah. people. And so people were pissed off. They turned the populace against them. And so they really went this uh, mouse people's war. They had the base areas. They were building up support in the populace. So they, they started uh, getting recruits. And the TDF takes both men and women. Like you look at this TDF units, they're like half women, half men. And so they got tons of recruits. They're, they armed all the recruits with all this, you know, military equipment they just captured. And they marched on Mechalay and then, you know, paraded all their POWs. And then they marched south. And the ENDF, basically what was left was the garrison forces that were basically um, had withdrawn after the huge defeat in the Tembian Mountains. And then they withdrew south to uh, Waldia and Raya and Alabada, these, these cities in between the main, T like southern Tigray and like northwestern Amhara. And this is where the, the Amara, they, they started raising this. So there's the National Party, Azema, in, um, in it's like the like ultra-nationalist Amhara party. They started organizing their own militia called Bano. And they're, they're not pro-OB, so they didn't want to fight under the NDF. They didn't want to, so they made their own force that wasn't, wasn't part of the Amhara national government, wasn't part of the NDF. It was like controlled by the party. It was like their own force. And they didn't have any weapons. I mean, the Ethiopian army doesn't really want to arm them because they see them basically mm -hmm. as a threat. 
Like, I mean, the, if they were armed, the first thing they would do would be overthrow oh. Abiyama because he's in a robo. So, you know, they, they give him some weapons, but mostly it's sort of private weapons. Like, you've seen these guys, they're going to the front, they got like machetes and sticks and shit. And um, they weren't very successful in blocking the advance of the TDF into Amhara um, um, State. But also, the TDF, when they took Mekele, it was the rainy season. Mm-hmm. So they just, they basically waited it out. They waited for a few months, and then they marched south and they they invaded Amhara State. And um, what happened was that the ENDF was massively overwhelmed. But this is, you know, the T- TDF who was already militarily the equivalent of the ENDF plus an ENDF's field army worth of equipment in a huge new recruit army of volunteers. So I mean, they were massively outnumbered. So they tried to withdraw. They tried to leave. But the, the Fano militias, they wanted the ENDF to stay in fight. So they actually would block, they blocked the roads, they put like logs and rocks. And Fano is the and like Amhara, shot people trying to leave. Uh, autonomous militia. Yeah, yeah, the Amhara militia. So they basically prevented this reserve force from leaving Raya and they forced them to stay. So they got encircled and captured. So the second field army also got captured. And where are these guys going? So, Gulag Archipelago. So they're going uh, south. From the north or something? Oh, well, no, they're just the, the, yeah, the POWs. Yeah. No, they're just going to like basically, they got big, like, I think they're actually like put in like field work and stuff, like pulling uh-huh. veggies and stuff. Is there any like, videos, like, is there I like a, yeah. I don't know, Maoist prisoner, you know, education yeah, thing going on? Prisoner of like, war, right? Like, yeah. It's like prisoner of war. I don't yeah. think it's very nice. It never is, but. But, um, <laughs> oh the well the international community the AU the the UN everybody was sort of deliberately not paying attention to this for like the first nine months and then when when the war suddenly changed and all of a sudden it was you know Tigres invading Amhara it's like okay the Ethiopian state is at risk it was too late like they hadn't put anybody there um, so they started moving people. I think there were some aid agencies. There was always some aid agencies trying to get food because the there was a deliberate blockade of see they decided when they when they lost on the battlefield they retook Mekele, the Ethiopian military did the kind of uh, Yemen style they just mm-hmm. starved them out, right? Because Tigray's not very agriculturally rich. It relies on a lot of food imports. So it's like Yemen, right? So um, like okay, we'll just close them off and we'll starve them out. We'll smoke them out. Uh, but the other thing, too, is not just food, but also gasoline. They wouldn't allow any gasoline in there, to, so they couldn't operate their military vehicles. But um, And that was basically the UN presence. It was these sort of aid agencies. But um, the aid agencies wanted to have access, but of course, IBM didn't want them to have access. So it's sort of been this push and pull where like, there's diplomatic pressure from the UN and from the US and stuff like that to let the agencies in. But that's against their military strategy at the moment. So they don't, they want to stay out. So I think they let in a couple of vehicles, like there was some photo ops and then they basically just closed the border completely. And there hasn't been any shipments. So, so we're looking homes. at a pretty major humanitarian disaster. In the control oh yeah. Place. Like I think a couple of days ago, there's a Nekle hospital said 200 people had starved to death. It's probably a lot more. At home. Yeah. yeah. That was just that one day. So, yeah. So it's not good. It's, it's, it's the worst war in the world. Let me put it that way. Hard to beat. There's a lot of big ones um, going on right now. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have I haven't even talked about the OLF and the OLA. 
Yeah, that's a whole other subject. Yeah. Okay. So in 2018, Abiy Ahmed made a peace agreement with two groups. Uh, he made a peace agreement with the Ogaden National Liberation Front, which was the successor to the West Somali Liberation Front. After the Siedbar government cut funding, they went local and uh, went national. Basically, the Ogaden to the largest Somali clan in Western Somalia, a.k.a. Somali region. And the other big group they cut a deal with was the Oromo Liberation Front. And the Oromo Liberation Front agreed to disarm completely and become a political party, and they would uh, participate in the elections. Um, and uh, the biggest, so there's there's two Oromo groups. There was the Oromo Liberation Front, which is sort of the original Oromo nationalist uh, group. And there's a newer group, which emerged out of the protests from 2015 to 2018, which is called uh, Kiru, which sort of means youth. Um, and Kiru's leader, so they were more significant politically, and I'd say even more significant, um, even militarily, is Kiru. And the Kiru's leader is a guy named Jawar Muhammad. And Jawar Muhammad was actually one of the guys who brought Abiyama to power. He was the big protest leader. Uh, he's a big time Oromo nationalist, uh, ostensibly a pro-democracy guy, but really, you, want, you know, he's, he's a Oromo uh, nationalist. And uh, when, uh, when Abiy Ahmed got into, into office, um, the protests, so um, the Oromo demands for more representation, more power, more influence, uh, Abiy Ahmed sort of put those aside. And uh, the Oromo decided to keep, pro they protest him to demand those reforms. And uh, in response, in August of 2020, so about, what was that, four months, three months before the, the war in the North? They actually put uh, Jawar Muhammad and the other leaders of Kiru in prison. And they've been in prison since. They've been in prison for like a year and a half. And they've been on a hunger strike a couple of times. Um, it's a big, big issue in, uh, in Romo um, society that Jawar Muhammad is still in prison. And that really radicalized a lot of Romo against the government. Because basically the other thing that Abiy Ahmed did, which really pissed off the, uh, the Romo, is the Romo. Uh, want to expand Aromia and basically include Addis Ababa in Aromia because Aromo consider Addis Ababa Aromo land and it's actually called Finfine. That's what they call uh, Addis Ababa's Finfine. It's stolen Aromo land from their, from their perspective. And so um, uh, Abiy Ahmed is half Ampara and he's pursuing a centralizing um, policy, which as I mentioned before, in Ethiopia, centralizing equals pro-Amhara from a lot of people's perspective, including the Oromo perspective. So the Oromo see this guy like, okay, this guy's not actually one of us. He's like, he's a, he's an Amhara in Oromo with an Oromo name, right? And uh, they start, you know, everybody remembers, oh yeah, like yeah, that his mom said he'd be the emperor of Ethiopia. And, uh, and he's like a, a Protestant, he's like a Snake handling and Pentecostal. Like Pete Buttigieg. And so, Pete Buttigieg of uh, Ethiopia. He's been striving. Yeah, so they totally turned against this guy. and um, But the OLF, so the mainstream Oromo Liberation Front wanted to stick to the deal. They wanted to just win elections. Mm -hmm. they, they weren't interested in fighting. But this group split from the OLF. So there's this group that said, okay, screw this. We're going to go back to the bush. We're going to get some guns. We're going to restart the guerrilla war. And they split off and, and called themselves the Oromo Liberation Army. Um, uh, so they, under J their, uh, Jal, Jal Maro is their leader. And uh, they started really small. I mean, they're basically this tiny little group 
in 2020 in Western mm-hmm. Welaga, which is far to the west of Ethiopia, where they're basically doing kind of like hit and run clashes. Uh, very small, small, small ball stuff. But, you know, the longer Jawar Muhammad's in prison, the longer this war is going on. Um, and also, like, these Amhara the Fano are kind of nuts. Like, they, they keep uh, killing, like, Oromo uh, mm-hmm. officers in, in the Tigray War, uh, who they say they were, like, spies or, like, so trying right to flee or something. Is this, like, a more right-wing aligned group? They don't have any, like... The Maoist pretensions or anything? Yeah, these are like ultra, like Oromo ultra, ultra national, are also yeah. just pissed off. Oromo's not necessarily. So at the one hand, you can you can go online. You can go to like Mareja, which is a big uh, Ethiopian. Oh, you can open up some threads from like, you know, like uh, like uh, Amhara mm-hmm. nationalists, and half of it will be like, you know, we need to support the NDF. We need to support uh, Abby because he's pursuing our goals. But then like the other side, these guys like these you know they're blaming all the military losses and not beings like he's a traitor. He's deliberately doing this. He's trying to destroy Amhara. You know. So it's kind of this, this schizophrenic uh, attitude. And I think um, if given the opportunity, I think they would just get rid of him and put, they, they want, they would rather have like one of their guys, like some Azema guy like, in charge, right. Who's going to, you know, really pursue like a, a, a true Amhara policy. I think they, they still see him, like there's tons of conspiracy theories, like that he's ordering his forces to like he's the one behind a lot of the Amhara killings in the south, because there's been tons of ethnic violence in the south between Amhara and uh, and uh, Roman. I find that once like ethnic violence starts and these like village massacres starts, it's not hard to expand your ethnic militia because like you don't really get a choice in an ethnic yeah. war. You're either you know you're either with yeah, somebody exactly. or you're defenseless. Like you need a guy. Like you need you need protection of some kind. Like. Oh, well, oh, for the Amhara? Uh, yes, there are. I mean, there's there's sort of like two different groups. There's like the, um, I guess I don't know what you call it, the cosmopolitan or Ethiopianist mm-hmm. Amhara, especially like more cosmopolitan, especially from uh, Addis Ababa. The, you know, the more urban, urbane cosmopolitan people from uh, probably as core mm-hmm. supporters, right? Because they they don't, they don't, they're not really big on nationalist politics. They kind of want a bourgeois, like, you know, mm-hmm. unitary policy. And they just see like, you know, they don't see themselves as sort of as, you know, pursuing an Amhara nationalist policy by wanting a unitary Ethiopia. They just see that as common sense. Like, you know, we should just have one country, you know, and we should all just speak Amhara because that's what we all speak. So it's a big deal. That's very Democrat to me, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, right. That gets me to another right? section and here. So, like, is there, a, is there a clear, like, class breakdown amongst these groups? Like, is the TPLF or Tigrayans generally, like, who... Is there a national bourgeoisie, like ethnic group, or? Well, this is part of the problem: is that Ethiopia is extremely mm-hmm. rural. Like it has this, it has this newborn bourgeoisie that have come up in like only the last thirty years, mm-hmm. right? Um, purely the product of of like the TPLF, EPRDF development mm-hmm. program, because all they've cared about since they took over the country's yeah. development. Because Ethiopia was the most backwards country in the world in 1990. Um, but most of that development has been around Addis Ababa. Like it's very centralized, right? Like Addis Ababa is a modern city and the rest of the country is like, you know, completely undeveloped. And there's like a couple of modern highways that are going like north, south, east, west to the main resources, right? To the, you know, mines and the, the dams and the, 
and the big like agricultural regions, but like there's no roads going like out to like mm-hmm. the villages. And that's one of the main reasons why the, the TDF in Tigray was able to win so easily is that the logistics you know, outside of Mekwe for a, a mechanized army is, is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the trying to fight, yeah, exactly. Like the, the Kentucky example, trying to drive tanks over, you know, these, <laughs> these narrow dirt, you know, paths. You yeah. Know? And when like a toilet so, seat costs yeah. $45,000, you know, it's really expensive to outfit an army, yeah. you know, a weaker nation. <laughs> um, well, that, that's interesting. And so most of the wealthy people in the country would be Amhara. Uh, yeah, and and almost everybody who's bourgeois is is in mm-hmm. Addis Ababa. Like, there's almost no bourgeois elsewhere. There's like a couple, there's tiny groups. There's like in Kambolcha, there's like a little industry there. There's a couple workers. There's you know a couple. You know, I think Mekale has a tiny little bourgeois. But like, for instance, like the the Oromo, I think are like more than eighty percent mm-hmm. rural. Like, uh, it's like it's more like Afghanistan, where like the overwhelming majority of people mm-hmm. live in rural villages and live traditional lifestyles. And, you know, there's very low literacy, there's very poor medicine, um, like a lot of problems that are kind of gone in the, in the Western world, like fistula and stuff like that are huge problems in, in Ethiopia. Uh, it's very undeveloped. It's, it's like you get outside of Addis Ababa and it's just like villages with no running water, electricity mm-hmm. or roads. So the economy's yeah. more and then of a, just spread. I don't know, Liberian economy, just like purely extractive like railways go into the mines you know that's, that's standard french bullshit yeah go into uh, the resources go um, yeah, yeah. so i'm guessing imf stuff going on there uh you know not a lot of development coming yeah. back but um well kind of, it's tough though because i mean i remember like the chinese tried to build this huge so there's tons of oil in mm-hmm. western Som- in uh, western somalia um, but one of the big goals of the onlf has been preventing any extraction of, of the resources like Wholesale so anytime, or like, without a, them involved? Interesting. At all. Nothing. Why? Yeah, they, if, if, if they haven't, if they're not in charge, nobody gets to build anything. Okay. That's basically their philosophy. But if they and were so, in charge, like, they, they would try to, to build that stuff huge, in the ground? Or they like... No, sorry. This is the Ogaden National Liberation Front. This is, this is Somalis. And um, like the, the, I think 10 years ago, the Chinese, this Chinese company was trying to build this uh, oil exploration in Ogaden. And they just attacked it and took them all, took them all prisoner. I think I remember it was that. a huge proposal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the end of, uh, yeah. Like, this is well, an environmentalist thing. It's basically they're trying to, yeah, they're, well, it's also they're just trying to, like, they don't want any any successful industry there is like an anchor that the, the government has, right, mm-hmm. in that region. So they, they want, they want you know, the government completely out, right? They, you know, they want to liberate. You know, yeah, yeah. Go, 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 go and so um you know the it's funny because i mean somali the somali region went from the most dangerous part of ethiopia where it was basically on like lockdown 24 7 with like basically death squads like uh the leo police somali leo police wandering around uh killing people to defeat the onlf so they cut this deal with the ONL. Abiy Ahmed signed this deal with the ONLF. The ONLF completely disarmed and actually have remained disarmed. They haven't reformed. I think they started talking about reforming something just to protect Somali interests. But it's now the safest part of Ethiopia. It's the only part that doesn't have any fighting. So it's a complete reversal. Now you got like what used to be the safest part, like Tigray and, and Amhara, just 
you know, killing each other. It's a battlefield. And then the only food secure part of Ethiopia where there's no wars is the Somali region. It's, it's complete on its head. Shit's crazy, man. That's all I got. That's what I got to say. Um, yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah. So they're they're in like West Wegla. There's another group in the south in Gucci. The Gucci, the south, the is that south where that front comes from? Gucci. of OLA. That. Uh, Guji, well, Guji is a is a uh, clan. Oh, of I meant like the fashion. They're not, probably not related. It's a uh, it's a branch of the. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you mean like okay. Guji? No, okay. there's no connection to Guji berries. No. Not that I know of, but uh, yeah. No, anyway, um, so it went from that, but uh, with with the army sort of distracted in the north, um, you know, they're they're locking up all these Romo leaders, not letting them out of prison. Uh, they're not addressing any of the concerns of the protesters. And so more and more of these recruits are going over to the OLA. So it goes from this tiny little group that's, you know, a joke in Welaga and Guji that's just reformed. There's maybe you know, a couple hundred guys, you know, and then uh, more and more people from uh, Kiru start uh, defecting and then security forces in Romeo start defecting because there's, um, there's Ampara militias and Ampara state forces who are actually attacking into Aromia to like intervene in the ethnic violence between the Romo and the Amhara, so like security forces start defecting to the OLA. And now you got areas like they've taken over tons of, of Aromia all around Addis Ababa. Like they can basically north of Addis Ababa is all OLA territory. I remember like you posting about this a while part ago, of Aromia. You were like, but yeah. OLA, what are they? Are they, are they still a thing? Do they have anybody? Is this like a mainly ceremonial thing? Oh, yeah. You know? Well, it's a total news yeah. blackout, right? Like, uh, unless you're actually following the like Aromo Liberation Front media, you never yeah. hear about any of this, right? And um, so they've, uh, they're still mostly a guerrilla force. Like, they only control, I think, mm-hmm. one city, but tons of villages and towns all That's over. And again, like 90% of the Aromo live. Like 80, 90% mm-hmm. live in the rural areas, right? So controlling the cities isn't a big deal. You want to control the countryside. That's where everybody lives, right? So they've taken over a ton mm-hmm. of Aromia. And they're still kind of in that phase, like the, the base building phase of, of like people's war, right? They're not going mm-hmm. for the cities yet. Um, but they've sort of you know managed to build up enough support now that as the TDF keeps marching in, like they've so there's this part of Aromia or sort of part of uh, Amhara State called Aromia Zone, which is this Aromo majority part mm-hmm. of Amhara State, which is immediately south of Desi and Kambolcha, which they mm-hmm. captured last month. And this area they marched into, and they uh, basically, with the support of the local Aromo, uh, basically uh, sleeper cells of the Aromo Liberation Army, um, captured this town Kamise, which is the capital of, of the zone, it's taken mm-hmm. over most of the zone. And now uh, they've linked up with uh, OLA forces and now this joint force is marching further south. They're almost at, and at they're approaching right? the city. Like they're like the TPLF. Yeah, so like they're like right there, right? The TPLF, like, like yeah, yeah. Well, there's, to fall? The Ethiopia is mm-hmm. so big. There's there's still like hundreds mm-hmm. of bombers to go. Like there's there's a couple of major cities. Like uh, I think they're fighting over right now. There's a town called Debrecina, which is um, just north of this larger town, which is the, the largest town in uh, North Shiwa, which is the Amhara mm-hmm. part of Shiwa, which was split up by by the EPRD in the nineties, and that's Deborah Burhan, and then Deborah Burhan 
after you take Deborah Burhan, then you enter Aromia, which is already largely controlled mm. by the OLA. And then uh, the next town after that is Addis Ababa. Looks like they got a highway going there, so that's that should make things easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, there's no there's no overlap between uh, Tigre and Oromo. Um, but uh, actually, the Tigre Defense Force and the Oromo Liberation Army actually signed a formal alliance uh, a couple months ago. And so they're formal allies and uh, cooperate. Uh, but nobody really knows what happens after um, the alliance sort of knocks out the mm-hmm. Abiy regime. Because most likely, if, if Abiy falls and the war against Tigre collapses and they retake you know, Tigre lands... Um, Tigre's kind of left with a choice. Do they just leave? Do they do they walk away, say, okay, like, uh, you know, see you guys? Or do they want to take over again? But, I mean, can they take over? Do they want to take over again? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what... I don't think they know what they want. I think they just want to get rid of Abby at this point and then have kind of a some kind of conference and then figure out... Yeah, it seems like there, they want but, a stronger negotiation point, you know? Like very- yeah. But, um... The main problem, too, is like there's still Eritrea occupying a lot of Tigray. And uh, also with all the, I mean, there were a lot of atrocities and, and terrible shit that went on in, in Tigray. So the Tigrayan force that's now invading Amhara lands, there's now also atrocities mm-hmm. against Amhara civilians. And that's compelling a lot of Amhara to now join Fano. You know, so it's like, it's kind of... You think we're winding up right this, now you know, towards something bigger? or yeah. Eritrea is in a tricky position because uh, US, the U.S. is kind of doesn't really know what to do. But the one thing they do know is that they don't like Eritrea. That's the only thing they, they do know is that whatever happens, Eritrea, screw you. So, I mean, the yeah, the North oh, Korea. I've heard that. So, like, like the when they when there was the invasion of Tigray, for instance, um, the U.S. issued an ultimatum and and and. Uh, issued sanctions, but they specifically only sanctioned Eritrea, not Ethiopia. You know, Abiy Ahmed is not sanctioned. He's never ordered to withdraw from Tigray. Only the Eritreans mm. were. And like the Biden administration slapped like this huge array of sanctions against Eritrea because like, uh, you know, we don't know much about what's going on here, but the one thing we do know is that we don't want Eritrea getting any more influence, any more power, any more territory. So like, you know, the only thing, the only decisive action the U.S. actually has taken so far, is to come down with like the iron fist of the IMF on, on Eritrea. The most deadly weapons out there. You know, yeah. Well, the the Eritreans have pissed off the U.S. a couple different times. One, they they keep uh, threatening to invade Djibouti, which is host of a huge naval the base. Chinese military base now, right? Uh, for the oh, the French, Chinese, American, all in the same area. I wonder what that's like. You go for coffee. Well, like... Eastern Syria, you know, they got the same thing going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, like, what what do you do when you're walking, you got your latte, and it's like the Chinese military base guys coming the other way, you know, with, I don't know, gym, dim sum or something? You probably don't do a lot of chit chat. <laughs> yeah, they probably, you probably don't, don't chit chat outside. It's probably very <laughs> quiet outside. So there's like, I mean, Djibouti is basically a military base with the country mm. attached to it. I mean, there's like a French one. American one, um, they got their own one. There's an Ethiopian, like I think there used to be one. That, like they got a kind of military sub base. I think the UAE's got a base there. Yeah, it's just the pilot, you know. And and Eritrea's got uh, their big backer isn't is uh, the UAE because the UAE has a drone and an air base at Asab, 
which is uh, where all the UAE were flying all the drone flights. But but those all ended basically with the UAE, I think, got a phone call from the U.S. that said, okay, yeah, um, no more supporting the air train army. And then all the, the UAE actually withdrew from their assault oh. base and pulled all their shit out and went back to the UAE. The brave warriors of the UAE, I yeah. never would have expected. Yeah. Well, I can answer that, actually. They haven't shown up in Ethiopia, correct? They said they were coming. Yes and no. So, uh, well, no, there's there's been a lot of drones. Um, but the thing is, is that the initial strategy that the TDF was pursuing was fixed defense. Mm. Like uh, Armenia you know, in the Karabakh war, they, they did uh, fixed mm. static defenses. And uh, the drones were blowing up their static defenses. So uh, what the TDF decided to do is that this isn't viable. So they switched tactics and they went guerrilla. They basically pulled all their pulled all their stuff out, um, got very mobile, hid their stuff, like you know, hid their equipment under like you know palm fronds and stuff, and pulled That's it really into impressive. mountains. And basically, forced preservation, and uh, went went to ground, went went into the mountains and fought a guerrilla war, and uh, they just got lucky. Uh, like they, the the NDF made a huge strate- strategic blunder uh, early in the war, lost like their whole field army, and uh, after that. Um, they've been very mobile, so that, that's also another problem. Is the drones are best against really fixed targets, right? Any kind of airstrike, you want something that's not really moving. Uh, but now you've got this kind of dispersed forces who are kind of moving in this very sort of rapid. There's been some news about attack, uh, and so drone, and, and also the strikes. geography. Ethiopia is so big. A lot of these that, and the uh, airspace, air bases are, are so spaced out, highly marketed. Like there unless is, you're right uh, next to an airbase, you know, expensive new uh, toy the air supports that, uh, really cool. being attempted. Like one of the reasons uh, actually to, why to be sold, uh, the TF uh, hasn't the world, had as much success uh, in tapping I mean, into how far region. Uh, hardware expert. Like they're trying to to take the really road to Djibouti, uh, and then the if they can capture Samara, uh, which is right next to Djibouti, they can actually just that is import any food, weapons, and stuff that they need all around the world. They would end. It would end. Are they are they affected? But there's one of the biggest air bases in Ethiopia is in Samara, which is a helicopter, drone, and air base. And so the sortie rate there is very very rapid because it's very close to an air base. So that's actually one of the reasons why it's like very flat terrain, very open, and there's an air base right there. And that's how the Ethiopian uh, Defense Force and the Afar State Forces have managed to repel offensives towards Samara for the last uh, three months. Um, so I kind of wanted to move on to another topic quickly, assuming you've got the time. Yeah. Um, actually, it might not be, it's a big yeah. question. Um, so there's a lot of ethnic conflict here, and I know that Ethiopia wasn't really chopped up by any foreign power. It still sort of has its you know, semi-organic like ethnic, like territories and all that kind of stuff. Um, and indigeneity and like land rights, especially I feel like in Africa, um, can be very complicated. Like I know that like mining companies will go in there and they'll essentially just like do enough semi-historical research to decide that this one group is the like indigenous people here so that they get to sign away the land rights and it's usually the poorest group. Like how... Do you, do you have any thoughts on like indigeneity or whatever in Africa? Like it's a, it's an entirely different framework. Like it's not as you know. It, I wish it was as simple as like Israel Palestine or something. You know, but like. Well, it gets very funny. I know in Somalia where there's uh, you sign an agreement, you have to sign with which government, 
Uh, that's, that's quite funny because, I mean, like, uh, the reason why there hasn't been much oil exploration, for instance, in Somaliland is that the national government claims to be the government of Somaliland, and the local clan claims to be the rightful authority for that area, which uh, disputes the claim with Somalia. So, for instance, there's the Nugal Valley, which is uh, inhabited by this uh, clan called the Dilbahante. And the Dilbahante are a Harti clan, which means they're ethnically uh, part of Puntland. So Puntland is the neighboring Somali um, self-declared state, which also declares it's part of Somali, but independent, self-declared autonomy. Um, so the Sewell region, which is where the oil is, is um, part of the declared borders of Somaliland, which is another self-declared state. Um, so the local people in Sewell um, are, yeah, basically also... Uh, at, at a time, declared their own state called uh, Sul Sanag and, and Ain, which wasn't part of Puntland or Somaliland. And so there's overlap. And then, of course, the national government says that they're the rightful authority to give away any mineral or, or oil rights mm -hmm. in Sul. So there's four different governments that are claiming to be the sole representatives of the people of, of, of this little region. And that's where all the oil is. And um, so if you're Conoco, <laughs> who, do you, who do you decide to agree with? Is it who has the best deal or who has the most guns, you know, like who gives away yeah. the cheapest? But even then, like you're an oil company, you have to you have to be worried about what's, what's internationally legal, too. <laughs> right. So it gets yeah. very dodgy. So, I mean, this it's sort of uh, in a lot of country in a lot of African countries, like it's more straightforward. There's just some dictator mm. that you sign an agreement with. Uh, but then there's there's risk to that too. I mean, you have uh, the whole conflict in uh, Mozambique in uh, Cabo de Praia is basically um, the government signed away the oil exploration rights to the offshore oil. Yeah, there was a very recent coup there, right? Yeah, yeah. And then basically the local people uh, who were just you know getting poisoned and, and displaced from their lands by this freaking oil company and not seeing a penny from it basically joined ISIS and have been fighting the government ever since and have taken over. Cabo de Praia. I mean, they've taken over the whole freaking area, and there's like French mercenaries and Russian mercenaries. I think Blackwater's there. There's all kinds of people. It's this like very. I mean, you got you got to look into this. It's the craziest freaking war. And again, it's one of these wars. Nobody's reporting on it. Nobody's there. Yeah, I basically saw a coup sold off entire country to like oil company. That's basically, yeah. my my perspective on that. And that's basically like. All over Africa, there's there's different groups who are trying to assert sovereignty over their resources, and their success or failure is entirely dependent on how strong the state is and how available they are, how available. Yeah, it just goes so far back. Like, are there people that are mad about like the Bantu expansion? Like, I don't I don't understand where you can go from like the birthplace of humanity, you know, to like to figure out who's whose is whose. Like, I I don't really see anything other than like a communist government being able to figure that stuff out. You know, like, can there be is yeah. there is, like has anybody found a solution to this? Well, I think like, part of it like too. I mean, these, like I I look at it. There's there's three kinds of African states, right? I mean, uh, there's sort of these like uh, comprador regimes who are set up after the fall of the French Empire and the British Empire that are basically a management firm for Western extractive resource companies, right? They're there to sort of you know they're locals. They know more about how the local dynamics work, and they can kind of just smooth everything. You know, that's their job. And then there's the countries that were 
uh, liberated from that system, mostly by the Soviets in the 70s, 80s, and, uh, and 60s. And um, those ones are actually the ones that are driven by national, the national question. Because the one thing that having a, a Comprador government that doesn't benefit anybody at all, except for Western mineral companies, is that it doesn't benefit any of the national groups either. So you get more kind of like, uh, you know, but if, if you actually do manage to achieve um, some independence, um, then the national question immediately rises up. It's like, well, actually, which ethnic group is actually in charge of this country? Because there's only one presidency, right? But there's like all these different, you know, and they all want a piece of the pie. And, and ultimately, it's like, okay, like, what's, what's the official language? What's the official religion? What's the, you know, and you get, you know, the... Uh, Cameroon, where like the the French speaking and English speaking Cameroonians are fighting each other, or the, you know Congo, where these different Congo was like a hundred different kingdoms yeah, before yeah. the Belgians showed up and you know, chopped everybody's arms off. I was just reading about the pygmies the other day. A lot of crazy shit going on. Yeah, I you know I can't believe I'm saying this, but I feel like a, yeah. a Lebanese style government could actually like like work out somehow, or like at least like put some stability. I I, <laughs> I never thought I would say that, but uh, like. Is there anybody that's doing well, I mean, that sort of the, thing? The most stable thing, yeah. I mean, the the most stable solution would be like break everybody down to kind of their component parts, right? Have like a thousand African mm-hmm. statelets, and just let let er, let every tribe just sort of figure out what they want to do, right? If they want to make a confederation or you know some kind of regional economic cooperation broth or form, I feel like that's been the thing, together. right? And it's it's their choice, right? And they enter into it. You know, like that—that that would work, right? But these these borders are sort of established arbitrarily. I think some sort of yeah. EU thing, like that. You know, Gaddafi was trying to build some, you know, major economic framework throughout the continent. Like that seems to be the. I think the problem is. I was just going to say you can't you can't bypass the national question. That's the thing. Like, it has to be their choice, right? You can't just like say, okay, you know, you. you Screw your nationality. You're not important. Your language is dog shit. Your religion is a joke. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't just do that, right? You can't just yeah. bulldoze people, right? It has to, you know. And these people, they're not bourgeois, right? They, they haven't gone through like most of the, you know, this is these like pre-revolutionary French people, right? I mean, they're the peasants. Their their only identity is, is as their tribe, right? You, like they're not gonna they're not gonna let that go, right? I mean, you got to kind of go through the phase. You got to, you know, build a bourgeois, build, you know, build up industrialization, you know, build up a some kind of identity beyond just their tribe to have any kind of super supranational. Um, I mean, it's like you know the Bolsheviks and the peasantry. I mean, it's like you're not going to just get them on board with you know the revolution just organically. That's not that's not what they're interested in. That's not what they want. Their interests lie elsewhere. Yeah, I guess there's never really been a collectivization process that ever not been a fucking yeah. shit show, you know? Yeah. Whether it be European or Soviet. So, I mean, you look at, I mean, countries like mm-hmm. Ghana, where you do have, like, this this rocketing bourgeois, mm-hmm. right? Where this, like, it's actually the bourgeoisification of the country's actually reached pretty high levels. That you do have these debates in Ghana where it isn't just, okay, like, this this tribe voting on block against this other tribe voting on block. You actually have, like, well, I think, like, taxes should be this. And I think, like, you know, you have this kind of like national issues, right? And then, you know, but even then, like you get outside of the major cities in Ghana, you go up to the still like the tribes are super important. I mean, Ghana's like the most, you know, furthest along in the bourgeoisification mm-hmm. process, but it's still, 
you know, decades away from being even majority, like, you know, urbanite or bourgeois or even non-nationalist, right? I mean, for for centuries, I mean, Africa was just this big resource pit where you just reach in and take resources out. And anybody, you know, argues with you, you shoot them in the face, you know? So, I mean, that's that's a very low level of, of economic development. There's no economic development. Anti-development. Yeah. The only development was going in the, you know, the mines and the farms. And the, you get one railroad. It goes right to the port. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It goes straight from the port to the, to the mine and the back. Terrible, terrible public transport. It's cold. Those iron <laughs> trains are. <laughs> Like, you got to go through the whole Marxist theory, right? You got to go, like, you know, through a bourgeois period and then through a proletarian period. And then, then maybe you can get, like, you know, pan African solidarity. But, like, I, 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 you can't just skip. Like, that's just, there's, this, there's this desire, I feel like, people just to skip a bunch of steps, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, it just doesn't work. It just falls away. You end up with, like, Congo or, or you know, yeah, it's just, you know, you can't just force that on. Yeah, people. and I don't feel like. They're going to want to have their tribe in, in charge, right? No matter what, until unless you can give them some other thing. But that that other thing isn't organic. Like you have to kind of, you know, nurture that. Has to come through the, the process, right? And I, I don't think yeah. the present state of economic development is really going in that direction in most places. Um, yeah. Well, in, in Africa, like because you know it is actually going through this bourgeois period, you have this simultaneous like. It's one of the few places where capitalism actually is still working because it's like so little development that any development is good. And um, and it is like rapidly. These cities are growing incredibly fast. Like the fastest growing economies are all in Africa. Most infrastructure is being built in Africa. The fastest growing bourgeois is in Africa. But, you know, still so much to do. But also like, I mean, it's it's also all the problems with that, like, the, you know, the collectivization people like being kicked off these like farms and being driven into the cities and, you know, urban porch, like shanty towns trying to find work. And, and that of course, you know, is, is the engine behind industrialization. You have this like cheap disposable labor pool that you funnel into these factories. And so you got like China now building like subsidiary factories in like Nigeria and Kenya. And, and so it's basically like the, the cheap labor pool is moving to Asia and Africa. And that's that's basically the the process by which you end up with like you know an urban bourgeois, eventually a proletarian society that can pursue class and you know class. That makes a lot of sense. I haven't really, I never thought about it like that. Like I, I always, I thought we were past the stage of like European enclosure style collectivization. I thought we would always see no, like it's happening right now. I thought we'd see more of a Soviet there's a, like there's a guy. fast forward attempt through it as like I don't know like the Derg or yeah. like Afghanistan tried didn't work or something you know, but uh. that's very enlightening yeah there's a guy being yeah there's a guy being kicked off his land in nigeria right now merged into an agribusiness living with his family on a donkey to the city the british would be proud yeah uh do you have um what what political positions can be a benefit to the greater left in regards to africa like are there are there organizations that people should then look out for any any new movements or like uh Africom, like, is that something that, like, should that be the main focus of like leftist political interaction? Like, trying to get that out of there, or uh, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a pessimist, man. I have to say, I think um, I have, I don't think the, the 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 real crisis of capitalism is hit yet. I don't think um, I I don't think like the the true proletarianization is is happening. I don't think it's only I think it's only happening now. I don't think um, even the conditions are are there yet for any kind of um you know 
socialist. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's that, it's that tragedy. It's not going to happen in our mm-hmm. lifetime. You know, it's just, you know, it's like, it's that, it's that endless, you know, it's the Lenin, you know, what, what should be done? You know, okay. Like, you know, conditions aren't there. What's that? Where does that leave us? Right. What are we supposed to do? Right. But, you know, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> That's a problem, you know? I don't think anybody's come up with that, an answer to that question yet, you know? What are you supposed to yeah, do I in find the meantime? It, it's, it's not very, really an easy task to get Americans concerned about AFRICOM. You can barely make them think about Iraq or Afghanistan or uh, their neighbor, you know? Or at least two blocks. They might like their neighbor, but... It's a slow... And decentralized process. I mean, I think the only thing you can really do to speed things up would be um, like laws uh, encouraging and even mandating union membership. Definitely. Right to work Um, is a huge killer. Encouraging uh, cooperative takeovers of businesses by their workers. Um, That's it. I mean, you have to build, you have to build a base, right? You have to, you have to uh, deliberately intervene on behalf of building the social dynamics that support a capital, uh, socialist society against a capitalist society, right? And you can't do it from the top down. It has to be from the bottom up. But you can, from the top, basically tilt, like, uh, put your thumb on the scale, right? You can, you can like, issue mandates that, like, you know, all the, all the companies in this industry have to be unionized or every contract from the government has to be a union employee or get rid of these, like, private-public partnerships. And I noticed that, with the social democratic parties, that's not their priority at all. Like that's not what they're interested in. Um, they're interested in like social welfare, maybe some nationalization of key industries, but that's not inherently socialist. Mm-hmm. Like nationalization, like you know, nationalization is often like a uh, you know conservative, like protectionist governments nationalize stuff. It's, it's and it's that's the thing is like like a really aggressive policy like. Um, and offering like interest-free loans for for like uh, unions to buy up their business, buy yeah, up the right of first refusal, like, become like, or, like that would be that's yeah. that would be like the dream, like a removal of right to work and absolutely right of first refusal, and you can like build up an economic base for the unions, and then you you know you run into the problem of the union being dog shit, but like you know that can be that can be worked on, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. You also need power, right? The problem is. The, the biggest problem with a lot of these social democratic parties is their actual base, like the people who actually vote them into power, are not working class, right? And so they're pursuing mitigating the worst excesses of capitalism so they just don't feel guilty about it, right? Like they're mostly like, you know, homeowners, petit bourgeois. They're not actually interested in any systemic changes. They just don't want to see people like starving to death on the, on the curb, right? They 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 want to have, live in a nicer society, but they they still they ultimately support capitalist mode of production, uh, bourgeois control of society. That's why you need to. I mean, part of it, main thing is actually moving power, moving economic, social, and societal power into the hands of the people who will want to vote for you as a party of a workers' party. Right, like the old the old labor movement in the UK was so powerful because you had this huge working class union movement who that was their avatar. Like the labor party was their party. It was basically um, the unions made into a political party, right? It was literally their representative in, in power. Right. And when deindustrialization 
you know, kneecap them and, and de- you know, the uh, Thatcher crackdown and the, you know, Labor Party was never the same because the base of support changed, right? It was, it was homeowners and, and, you know, Cathedral as well. I mean, they're not going to support the same kind of policies. But I think also, um, like, uh, with uh, a lot of the finance, I think people on the left don't think about um, money very much. They don't think about what is money, what is credit, what is capital, right? Um, like the financialization of uh, the world and the establishment of what we consider money now was established after World War II as a very specific thing that was directly under the control of uh, the United States, the World Bank, and capital. And um, I mean, throughout the Cold War, up until 1990, uh, the Soviet Union had a gold-backed currency that had no inflation and had monetary overhang because wages for workers were more than the goods that they could buy with them, right? And that's a very advantageous position for workers in the Soviet Union. And that was annihilated. The, the biggest kneecap to the you know, Soviet Union, which is why the Communist Party could never regain power in the Soviet Union, is that the first thing that they did uh, right after they sold off the state industries you know, with those vouchers, and the second thing was they changed the currency to the IMF convertible currency, which is controlled by the World Bank, has constant inflation, which is a constant uh, wage reduction, and um, it annihilated the buying power, purchasing power of the workers in the Soviet Union and, and drove them to poverty. And that completely kneecapped all of their power. And Russia went overnight from workers state with a corrupt, you know, bureaucracy on top that wasn't very efficient to just a screaming void of a, the pure libertarian paradise of just complete. Oligarchy. Yeah. Really one of the great historical tragedies. But um, I didn't know about that gold. Yeah, I mean, the biggest reduction. We should tell the libertarians. I think that's an that? entire convertible population day and night. You tell them the USSR had a gold backed currency. Bam. Yeah. The gold ruble. In fact, uh, when there was inflation got too high, the Stalin actually seized all the old, all the inflated ones. I think they were banknotes actually uh, mandated a replacement of the, the Stalin gold ruble, which was like completely stable. That's dope. And so there was there was price stability. Like goods in the Soviet Union did not increase in price based on just like endless increases. So people's wages never went down. Like you know, here in, in the West, like your wages are constantly decreasing. Like you never get a wage equivalent to inflation, and that's by design. And that you, you don't need to give people a pay cut. Everybody gets a pay cut every year of two percent, or in this year six percent, right? And it's very insidious. You you don't need to. So all the power becomes in the hands of, of the oligarchs and the business owners because they can then decide whether you keep the same wage by giving you a raise, you know, as opposed to, you know, if you have a stable currency where you have more negotiating power because, you know, you actually have to mandate a pay mm-hmm. cut. It isn't just automatic. It isn't just rolled out across the That's an the interesting way to describe that. I haven't, I haven't considered the, yeah. the, the decision whether it's not to – pay cut because yeah, like yeah. if you a national level pay cut will uh that'll end your government pretty quick if you tell people they're going to make less money yeah. but if you're like ah you know the, the apples just keep going but up. the only people who talk yeah but because like this ground has been ceded to the craziest libertarians 
it's considered a kook opinion. Nobody talks about this, right? Are you gold pilling us right now? Yeah. Are we gonna be silverheads? Uh, you know, I'm just saying. You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just saying. Also, um, they actually factor that in as well as you notice the inflation calculation uh, for uh, mandated into um, like pension increases like that. Actually, uh, technological advances are factored into reducing inflation in their inflation calculation. So it's actually higher. You know, the baseline is higher than that. Interesting. So it's it's all, yeah, yeah. It's it's factored. It's it's nuts. I mean, this it's design. It's scientifically designed as a wage suppression mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like you know, pe- is an army of economists have, have poured over this and devised the perfect, invisible, insidious, you know, way that everybody accepts every year a huge wage cut, and then, you know, and that's why you look at that graph. It's like you know, compensation yeah, yeah. and productivity, right? Very graph. Very good propaganda, yeah. though. Great graph. Yeah, but it's not. That's yeah. by design. That was that was a, an outcome that was sought and mm-hmm. achieved, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think like the deck is kind of stacked against everybody, but I think um, there's there's this desire to to nibble around the edges, like look at sort of mitigation measures, right? Like you know, Medicare for all or something. Like let's let's mitigate the worst excesses, and let's not go after <coughs> sort of the root causes, right? The root cause is like, you know, the, the control of the currency by the IMF and the World Bank. Um, the trade policy that nobody, like the um, Bank of International Settlements, that has to go through the World Bank. So, like, uh, countries that try to challenge it. <coughs> like, the reason why um, sanctions are so effective is that you can actually prevent countries from converting currency. So, they literally cannot get people to buy their currency. So, their currency value drops like a stone mm-hmm. and they get like hyperinflation and their economy explodes then we should have had you on for this you're an expert james i don't know jack of trades real renaissance man top five canadians easily <laughs> well I, I see something a bit more insidious in this verdict actually and that um i think uh this is part of a wider goal to extend so currently police have qualified immunity which means that they uh, can commit uh, what would otherwise be crimes, as long as it's uh, form. There have been rulings in the past that it, it's okay for police to do that. So, for instance, a fleeing suspect, uh, police can kill them because they have qualified immunity on that. It's found in the past that a suspect fleeing on foot um, is a legitimate uh, target and, and can be a risk. You know, to them. So, I think what, what's going on now is I think. Um, this is an attempt to extend qualified immunity from state police, police officers, to irregular forces that are brought in to defend private property. I think there's an attempt to uh, basically uh, um, bring over the, the same kind of qualified immunity and rights uh, for um, like state, state mm-hmm. violence to private violence in defense of private property. And uh, that's that's what I see. This is part of. I think this is a this is a sort of a wider strategy. I see. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're, I agree. Oh, no, so I was just going to say, um, it's actually um, part of the. I see this is we're sort of in a second Gilded Age. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the first Gilded Age, uh, actually, the reason why the FBI was formed was to replace the Pinkertons. Pinkerton investigations, because um, with the rise of the labor movement, that was one of the demands of the labor movement was to get rid of the Pinkertons and to have a more, you know, quote unquote, neutral um, 
I don't know how neutral the FBI was, but, um, you know, from compared to the Pinkertons who would actually like, they, they were murderers. They basically were death squad Mm -hmm. basically for mining companies and, and, uh, railway companies. And they would break up strikes by just going and opening fire on the strikers and just killing them all. And, um, a lot of the really big battles, um, like actual pitch battles between, you know, gunfights between, uh, unions and, uh, Pinkerton forces and different mine guards. Uh, in like West Virginia and Pennsylvania and, and uh, like the, the West Virginia mine wars. I think there was an episode, I think working class history did a great episode. Yeah. The battle of Blair mountain, um, the, the largest uh, armed uprising since the civil war in the United States. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, we're not really entering new territory. We're sort of going back to old well-trodden territory. And I think uh, people, if they want to see how they can kind of resist this, uh, should really just take notes from the the uh, people who resisted the first time. You know, the the mine organizers who lived in much worse scenarios. I mean, we don't we don't have company towns the way they did. We don't have like, you know, the, the cops can shoot people. It's not like the Pinkertons where they just literally just open fire on like a strike. I think or, a lot of our company towns. Are so more I think um, bourgeois now, yeah. like Raytheon. But the tactics. Like, you know, we have aeronautics towns at this point. Well, there's a there is a the beginnings of one. Like, this is the thing, like, because we're in the second Gilded Age, we're starting from scratch. Like, the labor movement has been just completely obliterated in the United States. There's still a tiny one, but for the most part, the people in the labor movement in the United States um, aren't the most of the proletariat. I mean, most of the proletariat are, like, Amazon workers mm. or people working at um, Walmart or people working at gas Jails, stations. Prisons. You know. Yeah, all public furniture in the state of Virginia yeah. has to be made by prisoners. You have to, you have to have yeah. to. No, so I was just going to say, um, like, really what we need is is just more kind of Mother Jones, like people, not the magazine, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like yeah. the original Mother Jones, like people willing to get shot, you know, willing to go and, and you know, organize and, and salt and, and uh, you know, that's, you know, and that's going to be dangerous. I mean, you know, if, if people are successful in organizing more of these workplaces, you will see like, you know, Blackwater being deployed yeah. and, you know, you know, these like Southern states to break these up. Like they'll they'll pass laws allowing it. They'll they'll say, okay, you know, in this circumstance, yes, you can deploy this mechanized unit of Blackwater to break. Yeah, I don't have any evidence, but I'm, I, you know, I bet that Amazon's had a few people killed already, more than a few probably. Yeah. Oh yeah, but like you know, that's the only way, right? I mean, that's the only way. You got you know, without um, organizing these places, like yeah. nothing's going to change. Like they'll just it'll just be the spiral to the bottom. Like the the race to the bottom mm-hmm. will continue. You know. On that. Yeah. Anyway, sorry to end on a, no, end no, on a bummer no. note. That's how we like to do it. Um, <laughs> oh, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a good note, and we can get in our Palestine mention for the day. Um, there was, um, yeah, 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 I got one more thing. Um, there was, uh, there's quite a few Palestinians on hunger strike right now in Israeli prisons, uh, military prisons, on indefinite detention. Um, and um, one of them was on hunger strike for, I believe, I want to say, 114 days. Um, and he just got a release promised from indefinite detention. Um, whether that holds or not, we'll see. There's still, I believe, five other guys, one, one over 100 days at this point, I think. But uh, Israel gave a concession, which is pretty good. Um, the guy was so buff before, though. Like, he was like a real, he was, he was like the Chad thing, you know, but now he's all fucked yeah. up. Yeah, that's what they say. So, um, yeah, and so one more time, just to wrap things up. James. <laughs> Where can people find you? 
Uh, not really anywhere. I don't really have any things, but uh, you know, I'm on um, Twitter. I'm on. Uh, I've got a. I've got a blog. It's got a couple posts on it. Okay. Um, about East African okay. history. Uh, history in the horn at WordPress. Dot uh, WordPress. Com. All one word. So I've had a lot of. We've had a lot of call-ins. Some threats. Most nice from the Radio Warner community. Um, and they. Nice. Have you heard of a website called Substack.com? Yeah, yeah. My wife actually has a what? Okay. Substack. You gotta hype uh, that. I've been thinking about starting one. You have to. Yeah, Everybody yeah. wants it. You you have a huge audience right there. Like, uh, All right, do yeah. it, do it, okay. And I want you to credit <laughs> us as okay. forcing you to do it. We'll be we'll be thanked by many many people. That'll be our ticket to stardom. The inspiration for the Substack. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was just fun. Yeah, it. yeah. It was absolutely a pleasure. Um, and we like to end our show. With uh, Free Palestine, Fuck the Police. River to the Sea. That's a wrap. Like music. <laughs>